Larry Galco. I'm Roger Berkowitz, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. So, Roger, how's your golf game? <laughs> My golf game sucks. In fact, I don't have a golf game. But I'm, you I'm, I'm, I'm game. happy to talk about golf and, and what goes into it because, you know, frankly, and to go out there for three, four, five, six hours, sweat, get aggravated is not my idea of relaxation or fun. I understand a lot of people do it. It's just not my cup of tea. Well, you know, I've been playing for years, and the old adage is that, you know, you play your round of golf, the 18th hole, you really suck at it, and however, you still come back for more. There's something that just Well, well you, you back. go back for more. I go in the opposite <laughs> direction. However, that said, uh, I am really... Really excited uh, because I learned a heck of a lot uh, about our next guest coming in and about and about the game of golf in general. Oh, yeah, and also where it's going in the future and what Greg reflected on it was really pretty awesome. So today's guest is someone whose career started on the links and moved on to become a worldwide brand. Here's our conversation with the legendary Greg Norman. Well, Roger, it's a delight to have Greg Norman with us today. It Greg, is. welcome. Welcome to Boston. Thank welcome you, to our podcast. And uh, before we start our dialogue, I just want to uh, share a little overview of Greg's career, which I'll do in about one minute. That'll encompass 40 years, right? No, that'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we all know, successful brands are not just great marketing stories. They're really great business stories. And arguably the most successful athlete-turned-businessman in the world, Greg Norman is known as much for his entrepreneurial spirit in the boardroom as his dominance on the golf course. The internationally renowned Great White Shark won more than 20 tournaments worldwide. Greg now transcends the game of golf with over a dozen companies around the world world, bearing his name and the iconic Shark logo as part of the Greg Norman Company, which he leads as chairman and CEO. His internationally recognized brands boast more than 100 golf course designs across six continents, a global real estate empire, an award-winning wine, golf-inspired lifestyle apparel, and diverse investment division. Across all facets of business, the Greg Norman brand consistently delivers the quality that his name is synonymous with and continues to inspire people to attack life. Greg also plays a major role in philanthropy, particularly in battling children's cancer. Greg, as we start the conversation with you, I think the number one question all of our viewers are going to ask or want to know is when and how were you branded the shark or the great white shark and how did it all come about? Well, originally at um, 1991 U.S. Masters was my first U.S. Masters golf championship and um, coming over here to the U.S. and playing in the first Masters, nobody had a clue who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so fortunately for me, I was leading the U.S. Masters after two rounds. Um, obviously, you got to go to the media room. Uh, you go to the media on a Friday afternoon. They wanted to have a deep dive into who this blonde-headed kid out of Australia is that nobody knew about, right? <laughs> so at the end of the day, I just give them my upbringing in Australia, grew up on the Great Barrier Reef, dive with sharks all up and down the reef, um, in my blonde hair, my aggressive style of golf. And <clears throat> lo and behold, when I woke up in the morning, the Atlanta Constitution had Great White Shark Leeds U.S. Masters. Really? And that's really how it started. Um, so you were the prototype for uh, Crocodile Dundee. Dundee. I was around the same <laughs> era, but I don't know whether I was the prototype of Crocodile Dundee, but uh, it was interesting. Anyway, that moniker yep. stuck. Um, and then when I went to different places around the world in my game, just uh, fortunately for me, I kept winning and winning and winning. And so when I went down to Mexico, they would call me t- um, Tiburon, which is shark, right. Spanish for shark. Right. If I go to China, they call me Dabe Sha. So it kind of like morphed out into this, you know, wonderful moniker that's really been adapted all over the world. And and then eventually, um, after signing a contract with Reebok um, for a few years, the owner Paul Feynman wanted to come out with a 
a line of clothing. And uh, he wanted to bring out the Greg Norman collection. And that was in uh, probably the late 80s. Um, then when Paul came out with Greg Norman collection, that was the, the birth of the Shark logo. And the rest is history. So that wow. was your forte into the world of business with Paul Fireman? Um, yeah, and uh, with Paul Fireman. Yep, exactly right. He um, Actually, did I say 1991? I think it was 1981 I was leading the Masters, not 1991. It was 1981. I was just selling myself a, a, a 10 years out here. But, <laughs> yeah, and that's why in 80, in the early 80s that's happened, and then the late 80s with Paul Fireman, the formation of the Greg Norman Collection, and then we just kept building out and building out from there. Great, Greg. It, it, you know, it's certainly impressive what we've done, obviously, in golf and how that has sort of manifested itself in different brands. Is there one element of your golf game that kind of transcends into the different brands that you have? Oh, well, I, I think it bleeds into all of them, to tell you the truth. My personality um, of my the way I approach golf is similar but different in a lot of ways. Um Everything I did on the golf course, I was I did it myself. Um, yes, you have a coach, but I came up through a, um, um, a the clinics, the junior clinics. I didn't have a specific coach. Um, I was self-taught. I tried to understand my game my way um, by understanding my fingerprint. What why what stimulated me to play golf? What pushed me harder than anybody mm-hmm. else to play golf? What was I trying to extract out of the game? And to me, it was it was very easily identified personally, internally, uh, because all I want to do is just be the best I could be. So if I was a 27 handicapper, which I was at one stage, and my first score was 108, I wanted to break 100, and I wanted to break 90, and then 80, and then 70, and you know, 60 one day, which I've done once in a practice round, but. Uh, I kept pushing myself all the time, all the time, and um, and the speed of my um, rise, I guess, mm-hmm. into the game of golf was caught a lot of people by surprise, caught me by surprise, but at the same time, um, I identified inside myself that I was a very compartmentalized, driven human being that I didn't really realize mm-hmm. until I was 16, 17, 18, 19. Correct. So what was it? What was the defining moment being a pro golfer? And I also read that years, years ago earlier, you were a caddy for your mother, which kind of blew my mind that she was a single handicap golfer, right? Mm-hmm. What was the defining moment that said, you know, I'm going to go from pro golf to an entrepreneur and hopefully my vision and this, this whole business world will take off with the kind of envision I had? Well, I was lucky. Number one, I had a, a, a really good nickname. Uh, number two, I had a great logo, right? Um, and and that, along with the education with Paul Feynman and making me understand what branding and marketing is all about, gave me a, a very uh, clear look into the future. Um, I knew I could put bums on the seats of golf tournaments because people come watch me play golf. Um, I was always asked to go somewhere in the world to play golf, so I actually had grew a very much a global base of support and fan base and that support and fan base grew into a global base of corporate 
dollars who wanted to invest in me by me advertising their their company's name on a go forward basis. So I, I, the penny started to drop very very quickly for me, and um, and therefore I knew I had to build on the foundation of those principles of branding and marketing. But it, you could never build on that foundation unless you had a really sexy nickname and a really sexy logo, uh, because the whole thing about having a great logo is it's identifiable. Um, we we struggled a lot of times about do we use my initials or do we use a word? Do we play with the shark? But coming up with the logo of a outline of a shark was uh, was truly emblematic of me in a lot of ways because I attack life. I'm a self-motivated guy. Um, you don't ask me. I'm a din and dip guy. I'll go and get things done immediately. And Ex- explain sure explain done. din and dip. Din and dip is do it now and do it proper. And uh, if you do, if you take that philosophy, focus on what you need to do and then shift off to the next one once that's done. You know, it, it, it's interesting because you see so many athletes try to get into the branding game and they, they, they start out and inevitably they fail. I mean, it's it's the rule rather than the exception. You know, what you do is really exceptional. Why do so many tend to fail? I mean, from from your vantage point. Look, it's a long journey. Um, I think when athletes look at endorsements because managers look at endorsements, so you sign a three- to five-year deal for a company. You represent that company, let's say, for three years, maybe a two-year option or a two-year extension on that deal. depends on how your performances are, right? So you really are identified as a pass-through entity. And it's very difficult to build equity in your brand, let alone a corporate brand, if you're only there for three years. So if you are going to invest in the long term, you've got to look out 25, 30 years. And it's, you have to develop a strategy, a foundation, um, and a clear, definitive uh, thought process in your mind about how you want to get there. And then once you have that in your mind, then you have to clearly define it to all the people you bring on board to help you get there. Because I can't do it myself. You need people working behind you to push you and to help correct you a little bit. So it's a it's a long, laborious task. It's a lot of capital to do it yourself mm-hmm. in the beginning because um, you have to finance everything. Um, and if you miss a step or try and get too greedy or not understand the market you're going after or not even understanding your consumer who why do they want to buy that product from you why do they want that whether it's a soft goods hard goods whether it's wine or beef uh, whether it's real estate whether it's golf course design why what value do you bring them so you got to understand your consumer so you don't you can't pick it up being a um, like a pass-through entity, like I mentioned, you have to identify it by getting to know each and every one of the consumers. And as you get to know those consumers, it's not what they like, it's what they didn't like. And then you have to convert their their negative thought processes or their constructive criticism into a positive to build it ongoing. So what essentially you're saying is you have to look at it the same way you looked at golf as your passion, your business. If that does not transcend into a brand, you're going to be in and out of it very quickly. Exactly. Well, give me an example. Golf is a finite six-day period. You arrive on a Tuesday, you leave on a Sunday. You practice before each tournament focused on that six days, right? So Tuesday, Wednesday, you're preparing, getting to know the golf course. 
Thursday, Friday comes. You can lose the golf tournament in the first round. You can potentially lose it in the second round, but you can never win it. Mm-hmm. So you position yourself with with the right strategy by your preparation and your due diligence to getting yourself to Friday night. Once you got yourself to Friday night, you've got you're you're now thinking you're in a position of either I'm leading the golf tournament, I'm six shots back, I'm ten shots back, or I'm one shot back. What is my strategy to take me through to Sunday afternoon? be able to execute on my goal of what? You practice prepared to win that golf tournament. What what I'm hearing, you know, from from Greg is discipline, discipline, discipline. Passion and commitment, right? Well, all of that. Yeah, Yeah, all of that. There's no question about it. Look, I've seen a lot of golfers come on the scene in my career, and they can come in and they play extremely well for two or three years, maybe five years, win a few tournaments, and then they disappear. Why do they disappear? Who knows, right? I'm, I'm not a mind reader. I can't do. But I do know when I looked at it, I knew that the, the, the journey was the reward. So no matter what obstacle you had in place in front of you or what failure you had, you had to learn to embrace failure, learn by that failure why you failed, and implement it again. Now I look out 200 years when I do a, a, you know an executive retreat. I give them a long, long-term view, and everybody looks at you kind of like crazy, 200-year vision. Well, if I don't look out 200 years, who else is going to do it? If I don't put things in place today, which I do have, and I do truly believe if I left tomorrow, I truly believe there would be more than a majority of the things I have in place that would allow the logo and the name to live on in perpetuity for 200 plus years. So it was a very conscious effort of mine. I made two really ballsy moves in my life outside of golf was you know, going it alone in 92, 93, and then making this decision about how to take the company away from sports marketing into B2B to look at a 200 year horizon. It's not easy to do, um, but I had a lot of great people around me too that I could bounce ideas off and, and uh, you know, some might tell me I'm a bit crazy, but some tell me, yes, we believe we're going to drink your Kool-Aid and we're going to go with you on this journey. Well, so far you haven't been that crazy because a lot of things you've done have worked out exactly as planned, which is nice. Yeah, and you, you have a myriad of brands that, that seem to be focused around lifestyle, and I'd like to talk about those, but we're won't your brands go? In other words, are there the types of things you say, okay, this is my limit. These are my boundaries. Sure. Absolutely. There are, um, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. I mean, mm-hmm. I could pretty much, if I wanted to put your logo on everything, but you've got to be very cognizant and understanding of when you put that logo on something is there for a long, long period of time. And the residue can be bad or the residue can be really good. Um, so I'm very meticulous um, on where it goes and how it goes and how it's represented and how it's spoken about. Um, and another big decision now, and this is my third big decision, right? So this is three of them now. My third big decision was about 15 months ago was to partner up with ABG, right. Authentic Brands Group. For me to build my licensing side and my IP out in perpetuity, I needed a a really good partner to come in who experienced in this. ABG has like 28 um, different iconic celebrities, um, sports figures under their portfolio, within their portfolio. And uh, so it took me about 
12 months to study them, 12 months to negotiate with them, 12 months to finally feel secure enough that I had a partner there now that would protect the brand and that would build the brand up to a position that I truly believe it can be. And once you get it from one level, you take it to the next level and you just keep rising it and keep rising it. How are the dynamics as far as now having this quote unquote real financial partner or real solid marketing partner with Greg Norman Company? Look, it's it's a fascinating journey to date. Um, Merging of two minds because my company's been really successful. Mm -hmm. The logo has been really successful. My IP is really strong with a global penetration. Um, And ABG is a New York based company, right? Uh, So our cultures and our philosophies differ, but that's a good thing because I think it's very, very constructive when you have a board of directors that are at each other all the time for the betterment of the shareholders. Uh It's no different with ABG. It's called uh, ABG Shark now. Right. And uh, with ABG Shark, we have our views and points about what we've experienced for the last since 1992, right? And how we've developed and how we've grown that out and how we've established it and how we look into the future. And they come back with a much more aggressive timeline, much more aggressive approach. And you put those two together and you actually come up with a really good recipe. Well, it's interesting, Greg, because I read an excerpt from an interview that really aligns with your thinking. And also it kind of shows me some of their vision Besides doing this partnership with you, where they think you can take him in the future, especially in the baby boom, I just want to read it to you. It says here, Greg is a little different from some of the sports properties we've partnered with in the past, as ABG's chairman and CEO, Jamie Salter, said. He crosses all these pillars that we look for, fashion, sport, entertainment. In the endorsement world, ABG is particularly interested in getting Norman into the health and wellness space as the baby boomer population grows. It's easy to see that Greg is a walking billboard for the embodiment of fitness and wellness. He lives the aspirational lifestyle that proves 60 is the new 40. And I know from my previous life with you, you know, you are totally committed beyond, I mean, it's phenomenal to fitness, nutrition. In fact, you told me years ago that you haven't had a, be- a carbonated beverage in 25 years. Yeah, since 1991, yeah. Right. And Does, um, does beer count? Depends <laughs> <laughs> if you spike it, right? I'm, I'm guilty. You got me there. Right? Since we're talking about beverages, yeah, what do you think Greg and I have in common? Outside of the fact we're roughly the same age, he's a hell of a golfer. I don't play, golf. play golf. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't play golf. However, what do did you know play? that we both have, a, well, I, I'm going to put mine in the past tense, a vineyard. Okay, I grew grapes right. and made wine. Right. Uh, mine was not nearly as successful. Right. <laughs> I, attempt, I attempted mine in France, and as being a non-national, it just didn't go well for me. But uh, your wines have done phenomenally well. I know that you have uh, your Shiraz as an example. Mm-hmm. Your yep. uh, Reserve Shiraz yep. always gets uh, top rated. Tell us a little bit about the wine business. How did I get into it? Yeah. Um, when I was number one player in the world, there was a dear friend of mine who was head of uh, Foster's mm-hmm. in Australia, Foster's Beer, right? Yeah. Pretty iconic beer coming out of Australia. Um, and he wanted to for me to carry or represent Foster's in the United States. Mm-hmm. In those days, it was a federal regulation. Active athletes couldn't advertise alcoholic beverages, mm-hmm. right? Um, so right. We, were, we ran into a, a wall immediately. Mm-hmm. So we figured out how do we do this? How do we capitalize on my um, recognition, my position in the world of golf in the United States? So we came up with this idea of me testing this wine in Australia to, 
to compare it with what the palate in the U.S. was mm-hmm. liking at the time. In those days, it was oaky. It had a lot of buttery flavor to it. It was mm-hmm. just a heavy Chardonnay, right? I remember. Um, so we came up, and I did this taste testing, and I said, look, I live here in the U.S. I'm drinking these white wines out of the Napa Valley, Sonoma Valley, those arees now, and I think it's, I think you got a trend towards this way. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a great winemaker, um, and lo and behold, we came up with this, and we budgeted 15,000 cases of wine for the first year for Greg Norman Estates out of Australia. We sold 108,000 cases wow. in year one. So we knew, obviously, we were onto something, mm-hmm. um, and that taught me a lot about COG, cost of goods, mm-hmm. you know, labeling, how do we position it in retail outlets to catch the eye, all that stuff, the shape of the neck of the bottle, you know, how do you attract the woman's eye to it before a man's eye, all that stuff mm-hmm. that uh, I learned along the road. But I never got that far, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds simple, but that's it's a process that uh, you know, took a couple of years. So, so Australian wines really took off at a, mm-hmm. at a time, as you said, over the last 10 years, it's been getting a little bit more difficult to sell Australian wines in the U.S. Does this have anything to do with what Yellowtail did? Yeah, I think you, you'll see. That's a great question, Roger. I think what you see is the uh, the discounted wines really put a big dent into it. You know, what in Australia, what we call as cast wines. You, mm-hmm. you buy it in a gallon cast and you can just pour it, you know. Yeah. And then um, that was two buck chuck, I think, was another yes, one, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that wasn't um, myself personally. I don't think that was uh, promoting the Australian wines they should be promoted because we have some exquisite red wines. The you know the Penfold line of wines is an extremely good wines. There's some great vineyards out of. Perth, West Australia, that you know, produce quality, quality, high-rated wines all the time. We're actually being forgotten about. My favorite wines in the world are Australian. I think. They're, yeah, thank they're you. So, Greg, in addition to the wine, because I know you have about twelve brands, if you want to call it, in the Greg Norman portfolio. Do you want to create more offerings with the current brands right now, or do you want to say, hey, we have a great portfolio of brands here. We have to really get more people buying more of these products in these brands. Sure, look, you, you've always got to focus on what um, every division individually, right? Because every division is going to produce the revenue. So if you see a slowdown on something, you've got to shift gears and focus on right. that. But off that platform, once it's a solid foundation, which we are on, now you have the opportunity of looking beyond what does each and every one of those give you and what capabilities can we identify, what space can we identify that allows us to build off of that. We see this virgin space that's laying um, unused, untapped there, and we hear everybody crying out for help. I mean, you know, that's interesting to me. It's clear to me you really have a vision for business and how it should evolve. Going back to golf, I'm on the outside, I'm not a golfer, but I keep hearing about all these golf clubs losing membership. How How does, in your mind, how does golf evolve to attract the millennials. Well, let me let me let's answer more important part of that question is why did we lose the golfers? Why did golf hit a glass ceiling and actually go backwards where golf courses have been shut down on an annual basis to the tune of hundreds a year? If you really want to look at our industry, shame on all of us to tell you the truth. Shame on all the, the golf course designers. Shame on the people who built golf courses. Because back in the 80s and the 90s, when they were building some 400 golf courses a year, year on year in the United States, one word jumps off the table at you is sustainability. 
you cannot sustain that that type of growth with the perception of unlimited amount of money. Now, back in the 80s, everybody was over leveraged probably to 20, 30, 40 times, right? Because they thought the money was never going to dry up. So when you look at it, when a recession starts coming in, you've got to look back to what we did in the game of golf as golf course designers about designing golf courses that were, instead of spending 10 million to build a golf course, they spent 20. Instead of making it um, user-friendly with machinery, some of them were just like, you had to maintain the golf course by hand. That's labor-intensive work. So what happens, this annual budget to maintain and operate these golf courses, per year, even clubhouses, they were building clubhouses at 100,000 square feet. Right. A total waste of money. Along comes a GFC, along comes a recession. What's the first thing that gets affected? Disposable income. So when you look at the disposable income standpoint, everybody's going to go, okay, now I'm a member of five clubs. I really love these two. I've only played these three over here a couple of times a year. I'm going to drop them off. That's many, many, many golfers did that. And so golf became a product of their own greed in the end of the day. So at the end of the day, now as we look at it today, I'm going back to that word sustainability. We look at everything today in a, in, under, in a different prism. We look at now, how do you create sustainability? We know, Greg, it's interesting. Roger and I just gave a keynote at the Golf Strategy Summit in Atlanta last week when you were in Las Vegas. And, you know, the previous keynote was with Dana and other folks from Truen. They're all talking about how you grow the game of golf. And I'm sitting there going, it's falling on deaf ears again. They're talking a story. And one, one of them said, we know millennials is half our audience out there, but the baby boomer is paying our bills today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's almost like when Jack Welch says, if you don't change the game, the game's going to change you. So they've all done studies of CMAA, Troon, whatever. And they said that food and beverage was rated higher importance than the golf course itself. So what's your take on these findings? Is the golf community, they're not listening or, you know, they've been talking about this for years and no one's really doing anything about it. So what do they have to do to really make it happen? Look, I think identifying a way of going forward is, I think, I'm going to be brutal. Just think out of the box. Mm-hmm. Institutions are stuck in the box. They keep going. It's great promoting youth to the game of golf, like the PGA of America, like the First Tee, like the PGA Tour, like the USGA. They all have this pixie dust they think they can throw in the air. Right, right, right. They're all trying to go to do the same thing with the same kids, but with a different name or a different approach. But that's great, but that's not it. That's not it. You have to think out of the box. And um, I will confidently make a statement now that come 1st of November when we announce what we're doing with my partnership with Verizon, people might sit back and go, wow, this is out of the box. This is unusual. It's going to be the single largest investment I've ever made in any business, uh, along with my partner. But it is needed. It is absolutely crying out for it because you know why? It's been sitting there staring us in the face for years. So now, so you can't share with us this whole big, bold, disruptive thing you're doing Verizon for the next eight years. You can't talk about it today, can you? No, I cannot. I can just say Verizon. You just, you Verizon <laughs> Verizon's got um, Verizon's got a great motto: uh, disrupt or be disrupted. Right. Right. Okay. So, how do you want to go about it? And it really does fit into. 
my DNA about how I've gone about life with yeah. my golf and why I structured my business, about breaking away from a management company, identifying the space that I wanted to be in, to kind of be autonomous. But each and every step I've made, it's been a calculated risk. And you got to weigh up um, and look at the space that's sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite honestly, it's been a three and a half going on four years to 1st of November. Now, four years to build a, build a business model, develop a business model, find the right partner, execute on that business model from hardware to soft, software to everything you need to put in place is a huge financial undertaking in the hopes that you got it right. But... I know I've got it right because I have a partner like Verizon. Mm. And I have two other partners, I can't announce them now, but I have two other partners that are equally as strong in their brand and reputation that will, you know, accelerate the the consumer, which are other golfers, right? And the mum and pups who are, who own golf courses who are in a financial strait. They're, they're probably revenue neutral negative right. to some degree, but we'll give them an opportunity to share in the spoils. So it's an exciting time for golf. That's great. That's awesome. All right, Greg, switching gears a little bit, uh, you're obviously in great shape. I was just reading somewhere where someone compared you to a mature Chippendale. I want to hear what, what your routine is in terms of exercise and what you eat. Well, unfortunately for me, I eat anything and everything. I actually do. I don't. Um, well, OK, you're right. I don't eat anything white. I don't eat white bread. I don't eat white rice. Um, I don't eat a lot of carbs, but I do eat carbs. Um um, I'm a protein-based guy. I like my meats and my my uh, chickens and my fish. I love my salmon. Um, and I, when I say I like meat, I'll only meat, eat meat maybe once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I haven't drunk a soda drink like a Coca-Cola mm-hmm. or Pepsi or anything since 19, August 1991. For what um, reason? Um, I played in the PGA Championship, um, I believe it was an Inverness... Uh, golf club, and I was walking off the golf course with these vicious headaches, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And at the time, um, I noticed on the the tees that there was nothing but um, soda drinks. You know, yeah. the manufacturers, which uh, they have every right to do, and that's what you did. You figured you'd have a drink, and and I didn't realize that I was getting dehydrated. And uh, my body was having a reaction under high humidity because even in Australia, where I grew up, I really didn't drink a lot of sodas back there. So I made this decision then never to drink a soda drink again. And boom, my headaches went away. And hmm. boom, I, just, my, I changed my attitude and philosophy. And right there and then, I made the conscious effort to really get into fitness. And uh, I was very much instrumental in getting the fitness trailers on the PGA Tour that are there today. I mean, and I was involved in really pushing hard to get those. And um, so that, to me, was improving the quality of my life. Not just my golf game, but the quality of my life. And today, to me, I'm committed. If I missed my workout on a Sunday yesterday, so I worked out this morning early. Mm-hmm. Um, I woke up at 3.40 this morning, had things on my mind, I had some work to do, 
and I got those done around about uh, 7.30-ish, and then when I went to the, I went to the gym, I curtailed a little bit because I was flying up here to speak to you guys, <laughs> um, but I spent an hour and a half in the gym, and um, but it's kind of like, to me, in the afternoon, I go between 4 and 6 o'clock every day, as much, you know, I shouldn't say every day, five to six days a week, and it's my stress reliever. I mean, it winds me down. I mean, I can work out in the winter time as the sun goes down. I won't turn the light on in the gym. I'll have the music cranking loud. If I'm in the dark, I know where my machines are, mm-hmm. and I know exactly what how to work my machines. But I'm in my Zen mode, and there's no better feeling. Well, you know, Whatever you're you doing, it's yeah. working. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you see today in the leaderboard, you know, these guys playing, a lot of them, they're really fit. Do you feel, do you feel you've been an inspiration that they've looked at you and said, look at Greg Norman, and look what he's done with his passion and his commitment, and he's healthy and he's fit, and even at his age, whatever, and you've inspired them? Because today, you know, a lot of these guys, they're, they're, they're pretty fit guys on the, on, the, uh, on the tour. They are, and I think, you know, I would like to think, yes, that I was part of that, and but, you know, I've, 91 to 2001 are different yeah, you know, sure. 20 years go by and these kids are you know what I did back in 91 they wouldn't even know what I did in 91 right, right? right. they wouldn't know that I was responsible for those fitness trailers right. and helping them help pave the way for them to keep their bodies in shape uh, for a long period of professional golf. And also seems like today, instead of like Roger, just people working on the gym, their exercises for golfers, I mean, they're really tailored to your body and your swing. And I mean, it's more, it's more specific than just going on a treadmill and an elliptical and having a good day. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's uh, everybody has should have a different workout regime too because everybody's different. Mm. I mean, not everybody's different. Every body right. is different. And hopefully then there's more of a prevention of injury by doing it properly. Sure. Like do it now, do it properly, right? Yeah, do it now, do it <laughs> but, but with um, you know, expert advice and yeah. you know, putting in the right direction because you, you can get carried away. And the bit, and finally, I'm just on the fitness side, uh, be life fit, don't be ego fit. Right. There's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yep. If you want to go and juice up and pump up and look like some Chippendale guy on the right. beach, right? <laughs> um, that was a description used on you, Greg. <laughs> you know, you, you could, you could, I could go do that tomorrow. Right, you know, right. I could easily go and amp up my weights and do what I want to do and just get into you know that ego mode. And that's not me. I just like to be life fit. Where I know if I was asked to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro tomorrow, I could go. Hmm. If I was to go climb Mount Everest in two years, I could do it. So it's just as simple as that. If you could reflect back, uh, Greg, for one second, and what would you like your legacy to be? You know, a lot of people ask me this question. I really don't really really know, to tell you the (laughs) truth, because I think I have so much ahead of me. Um, I've been lucky about what I've done in the past, on the golf course, off the golf course. The people I've met, the CEOs, leaders of the free world, leaders of countries, and yet here I think, sitting here trying to answer this question, I don't think I've achieved what I'm destined to achieve. So, you know, it's, it's a strange a work, statement. A work in progress. Yeah, it's a work in progress, yeah. So you mentioned yeah. these relationships. You had great relationships with Bill Clinton, with President Bush, Nelson Mandela, Jack Welch. How have they influenced you as far as, you know, your leadership style and building your business? Look, all I can say is every successful person, I truly believe, want to see somebody else be successful in whatever capacity that is. If you're having trouble in life and giving one piece of advice and guidance that might help you get out of the 
you know, the cesspool of whatever's hanging around you. Um, and no matter what, um, we all, I, I want to see every Australian golfer more success, successful than me because I know how hard it is to achieve success, let alone maintain it, let alone build on it. So you, you want to keep, put everything in perspective and like all the individuals you mentioned before, um, each and every one of them had a very valuable piece of information to put into my recipe of life. Do you use it immediately? Probably not. Do you keep it in your mind where you can actually go back and access it and say, okay, this is what he said. What do you see? How do you feel? Analyze it, understand it, and boom. And, you know, it's incredible how when you when you get involved with these dedicated, committed human beings like the ones you mentioned, plus there's a lot of other people out there outside of that too, sure. um, you, you feel blessed in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so you reciprocate too. Right. You ask them a question, well, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? Are you reciprocating, for example, with the program you launched in I think, March at the University of Miami? The, the, you want to call it the Greg Norman Shark Tank or trying to find the next great entrepreneur? Do you feel because of your mentoring, and you mentioned earlier, Greg, you like to help other people be more successful? Is this kind of aligned with your philosophy of why you created this initiative at UMiami to help young, budding entrepreneurs even realize their own potential? Sure, absolutely. Look, to me, as I sit here today, I get more satisfaction out of being a mentor than any time in my life. If I have the ability to help anybody within my company understand where we're going, what we're doing, and help them get there and help them grow with it, that's a, it's a huge positive because you're, you're instilling importance and value and, and giving them a sense of direction. No different than what we did with the search of the next sports entrepreneur, right? You can't believe the amount of the, the response we got, number one, but the quality of the thought processes and the potential business that these kids come up with out there is just incredible. So if it wasn't me, somebody else might Spe- do it. Speaking of mentoring, I don't know whether this is a fair question or not, but I know when Tiger Woods was having uh, some of his issues, uh, President Clinton called you and asked if you might say something to Tiger. And you had mentioned, well, we live down the street, but we really don't know one another. What kind of... Uh, um, advice might you give Tiger unsolicited, you know, if you could and if he was willing to listen? Well, before you give advice, you have to know what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Simple, right? I mean, you're not just going to go down there willy-nilly to anybody uh, mm-hmm. just give him advice on a carplon basis. You have to identify um, where they need help. And once you identify that, then you can go from there. No different than... Um, identifying what is the problem if there is a problem in any one of your businesses you got to identify it then find the solution to it and look in situations like that when people go through you know personal trauma whether it's self-inflicted or somebody's going to have the the right message to the right individual at the right time that help them get through these dark times and no different with any other sports person like a tiger um i don't know him um I don't have a conversation with him, so it's very difficult for me to say what would I say. Um, but if he did ever ask me one day, I mean, I'd sit down and start from 
ground zero and walk, work your way through it, just like a father does to his son. Do you think he's fair, ever going to come back playing golf again? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the extent. I only know as much as you do, yeah. and I really don't read uh, anything about it. I guess that sounds great. Could have helped him. <laughs> Let's go to the lightning round. Okay, so this is where we fire some questions at you, uh, Greg. So you're known for long drives. What was your longest, and do you remember when it was? Yeah, I remember it was at Glen Eagles Golf Club, the 18th hole. I was doing an exhibition match with Tom Watson. It was a par five. I think I drove it like 457 yards, and Tom outdrove me by four yards. Wow. Wow, yeah. that, that, that is impressive. All right, Greg, I know that you're a healthy eater, okay? But potato chips, chocolate, or ice cream? Um, neither one of them, actually. <laughs> Doritos? <laughs> no. If, if I had to pick out, what is it? <laughs> if, I, if I had to go steal yeah. something out of somebody else's uh, hand, it'd be a Cheetos. Cheetos? Yeah. <laughs> if you could go out and play 18 holes and pick your foursome, who would be in it? I'd have the Secretary of Defense for Bill Clinton. I'd have the Secretary of Defense for Bush, 43. I would have the Secretary of Defense for Obama, and I'd have Tillerson today. And I'd want to know what the F is going on in this world. Very good. You know what's really interesting? Seriously, like Roger that. and I do this. We don't compare notes at all. But Roger's first two questions were my first two questions. This is this is ironic. This is cool. We think alike, right? I, yeah. I, I saw your notes. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. Notes. No, you didn't. No, that. <laughs> Greg, okay. if your business career didn't work out as planned, what other career journey do you think you would have pursued? I've never thought of anything yeah. else. I didn't have a parachute. Um, I was just confident in my approach and philosophy or where and there's no stopping you right no. yeah. wood metal composite in terms of drivers how would you rank them and what do you enjoy now if you're a number one player in the world I would say wood um, because you got instant feedback because the sweet spot is so small right you knew when you flushed a drive that thing was just hit perfectly because your sweet spot was about the size of your thumbnail Today, the driver's a 460 driver. Your sweet spot's about the size of your palm, right? So you really don't get that instantaneous positive feedback, both positive and negative, from a mishit shot. So I would definitely say, as a top player, would. As a, an average player, definitely. The oversized 460 that gives you more forgiveness. If I gave you a free mulligan, Greg, to do one shot over, either golf or business, what would you like to replay? Well, look, golf and business, you can't compare. But in golf, I'd have my second shot back at the U.S. Masters in 86 on the last hole. We, this, this, I, we told you before, you can edit certain things out. So if you don't like this question or, 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 or the answer comes out Every in a way you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, he, so here's the question. In, in 1997, President Clinton visited you, mm-hmm. and uh, he had an accident where he fell, uh, and, and he tore a tendon in his knee. Uh, it was repaired. Um, the explanation was that um, his foot got caught in the steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it, it did happen at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, and I keep thinking back to one of your slogans. You know, you got to visit the, the shark side. So um, my question is, was he visiting the shark side at, at, at that time? Well, I don't know what the shark side <laughs> is, but anyway, uh, it was legit. And a lot of people trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here, especially with... Lewinsky thing going on, on around that time. There's a lot of accusations that uh, 
I'd flown down Monica Lewinsky to have this rendezvous. That is all BS, total BS. Um, the president never drank, right? Never touched alcohol as long as I've been with him, known him. And he came in late, um, and he just wanted to sit down and have a conversation. And if people who know President Clinton, um, he is such a caring human being. He wants to know more about you than him talking about himself. Um, so we were sitting down. He was hungry. We got him a sandwich. He had um, uh, soda. I sat down. I had a beer. And we sat down on the sofa. And two hours went by before you could even blink an eye because that's how engaging he is. That's how much he wants to feel like you're part of him and he's part of you. And uh, you know, we are getting up early to play golf. He was going to play on a member guest with me at the golf club that I had uh, owned and built. And uh, we're walking down the stairs, and he's heel caught on the bottom stair, and it didn't slip, it just caught. And then he went, momentum kept going forward, and then he just tore his quad right off his knee. And, uh, and I, to this day, I caught him, and he landed on my knee, and to this day, my knee is bad because oh, his body oh, really? weight <laughs> landed on, and I had to hold him there until the, the medics came in. And, and believe me, the next 30 seconds was really interesting when I'm lying on the ground with the president and everybody's <laughs> right. and he's, he's not in a good place. It's hurting, as you can imagine, when you can tear a muscle off your, off your uh, leg. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, the next 30 seconds, 40 seconds, it, it's a really testament to how seamless and well-trained the people behind the scenes are around a president of the United States. So that's the true story. For the record, I'll buy that explanation. Okay. <laughs> that's a story, and you're sticking to it. <laughs> Craig, you're a real adventurer, and I know you've, at one time in your life, younger, you wanted to be a professional surfer. You you do diving in the Great Barrier Reef. You do a lot of things that the average person wouldn't even, even attempt to do. Like, I guess it's attack life, right? Have you ever come close to actually being near a great white shark in the water? Oh, yeah. I swim with them all the time. All the time? What, what, what's it like? What's it They're like? just a gentle, docile, oh, yeah. beautiful fish. And, um, really? Yeah, look, it's any, if, you're, if you understand the wilderness, uh, no matter whether it's a great white shark or whether it's a crocodile or whether it's a mountain lion or whether it's you know, African animals, uh, if you, you know the mannerisms, you yeah. understand it. And, um, you know, it's, like I mentioned before, it's a calculated risk, everything you do. But if you go in there understanding that this animal is just as is part of the natural environment, then you're coming into their world. So you have to be as equally as calm and as equally as relaxed and as equally as uh, strong in your beliefs that, you know, you can handle whatever situation comes your way. And, so, and where typically do you encounter them? Um, I dive with them in, in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Wow. South Australia is probably the most popular place for great white sharks. Greg, um, what, what would you say is the best shot in golf you ever, under pressure you ever hit? Well, Saturday at TPC, the year I won it, I believe it was 93. Um, I was playing the 16th hole of par five. I hooked my tee shot in the left trees. And if anybody knows the TPC at Sawgrass, I mean, it's a par five and the greens built out onto the, into the water. And I was standing on the car path, and those days you had spikes, not spikeless shoes, and um, I didn't want to drop the ball because I actually had a perfect lie, and 
and I actually had a shot through the trees, but it was a big high hook. And I said, I'm going to hit this high hooking two iron around there and knock it on the green. And my caddy thought I was an idiot. Why don't you just chip it out there, we'll knock it on, maybe make a four or five at the worst. And I just felt so good about the shot. I could visually see the ball. I could see the arc of the ball. I could see the apex of the ball. I could actually picture where it was landing on the green. Really? I went and did it. Pull it off. When you were on tour, did you have any superstitions? Um, I I remember years ago, I don't know if you remember this interview, Larry, with uh, Johnny Carson. I think he had Arnold Palmer on. Yeah. And he asked uh, Arnold, were there any superstitions? And he... And, and Arnold said, I don't know whether he was playing into it or not, he said, uh, my, my wife kisses my balls before every every tournament. <laughs> and, 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 and so... Uh, <laughs> no, I don't, that. I, don't, I don't have a superstition like that. I actually have never had a superstition. Really? I did carry, and I still have, a 10 yen coin that I was given by my pro-am partner in uh, the Kuzaha International... The first tournament I ever played in Japan in 1977. It was April of 77. And he gave it to me, a little little red ribbon tied around it, and he gave it to me, and he said in the Japanese terminologies, you know, it's good luck. Yeah. And I used that coin for every round of golf that I ever played in. Really? And now, is that superstition? I don't know, but it was just a given. I was so worn down. So, uh, and I still have it today. You know, it's really amazing how yourself and other golfers, you ask them certain questions, they can tell you, 1992, uh, hole number two, the dog leg right, it's amazing. We're talking like, you know, 30, 40 years later, and I still, you know, exactly know where these things happened. The brain is a beautiful thing. (laughs) (laughs) Greg Norman, a real pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, it's awesome having you today. And um, you truly have a brand like no one. Well, I appreciate that. I've um, I've enjoyed the process, and like I said a few minutes ago, I think I'm just about embarking, ready to embark on a, on a whole new journey that will, when I'm dead and buried, and the legacy of the brand is still going, then I know that legacy, whatever that legacy I was trying to put in place, was well, you know, done the right way. We, to watch. We, we want to, and also, it's really interesting to see how the next chapter unf- unfolds in the world of Greg Norman. It's been awesome having you, Greg. Thank you very much, Larry. 